Hi, everyone. The Sixers almost won last night. (laughs) That's a good way to get going. Uh, Welcome once again to this time an abbreviated edition of Not Another Philly Sports Talk Show. Um, We're going to keep it uh, a little bit shorter this week. Uh, because of the Thanksgiving holiday. I'm Mike Sealski from the Philadelphia Inquirer, joined by uh, the show's producer, Jonathan Tannenwald from philly.com. David Murphy uh, from the Daily News is not here today. He's on assignment, uh, I believe, at the Novacare Complex, tracking down some big Eagles news and offering some pithy commentary and doing the things that Murph does. Um, so we figured it, you know, he didn't need to come in today. John and I could handle it on a, on a holiday week. Um, so here we are. How you doing? I'm fine. I was uh, dealing with the other football and some basketball. Yeah, we're not going to talk about the other football. I was in the Inquirer over the weekend, though. I I know. I know. You're a big soccer guy, and and soccer, as as we all know, is a communist conspiracy that is um, inculcating America's youth with the the values of collectivism and, you know, tearing away the fabric of this country. So I was watching the great American sport of college basketball. All right. Well, that's a little better. That's Uh, a little better. But I was was engaging not only in, in... in uh, in communism, but in the city of Portland, Oregon. No well, less. there you go. Perfect. So, writing a, writing a column about uh, what the team in this town, the Union, can mm-hmm. learn from a, some of the teams in Major League Soccer that play their kids, and uh, have convinced their fan bases to be more patient than Philadelphia sports fans are. You'll see, I'll, it'll be up later in the week. Let's talk about some red blood of American football because that's what Let's, people yeah. are listen to. Let's talk about being impatient with. Yes. Um, with the football team that most people in this town pay attention to, and that, of course, is the Eagles. The Eagles are going to be playing the Lions on Thanksgiving Day. Uh, we're two days removed from a humiliating loss to the Tampa Bay Buccaneers 45-17, in which the Bucks ran all over them, and Jameis Winston threw five touchdowns, and dogs and cats were living together, and it was mass hysteria and all that kind of stuff. And um, Been a lot of questions lately. John, about Chip Kelly and what he's doing and how he's doing it and, you know, whether this team is starting to fray at the edges here. Uh, um, one of the biggest questions was a, a big headline in Tuesday's Inquirer and on Philly.com from your colleague Jeff McLean. Are Eagles players still behind Chip Kelly? I think they are behind Chip Kelly because they want him to take the bullets first. Um, and they'll be safer if they stand behind him. Uh, no, I mean, I, it's hard to tell whether they're behind them. It's one of the... You know, it's one of the interesting parts about his coaching tenure and his coaching style is that he doesn't seem to be somebody who tries to cultivate a kind of emotional connection with his team or with even with individual players. Like this is something that that you heard guys who have left uh, and left on bad terms talk about. Guys like Brandon Boykin and LaShawn McCoy and even Deshaun Jackson has kind of hinted at this that, you know, Chip really doesn't. Go, do warm and fuzzy, and he really doesn't do, hey, I'm going to treat this guy this way and this other guy the other way and kind of manage the personalities. It's kind of, hey, you're all grown men. I'm not going to yell at you. You're supposed to be out here playing hard because you're pros. And, you know, this was a team that that's roster got changed on the fly in some very big ways, and there ain't a whole lot of uh, what a Harvard um, – uh, you know, Harvard professor and author named Robert Putnam would call social capital. I don't know about this Harvard place. <laughs> well, you're a Penn guy, um, <laughs> and I'm a Columbia guy, so we can uh, we can kind of fake it and pretend we know something about Harvard. But there's not a lot of social capital. There's a lot of new guys, new faces, and things have not gone well. They're four and six, and so you get what Jeff wrote about off of Sunday's game, which is, um, you know, uh, one of the Eagles players basically 
in that cliche, throwing DeMarco Murray under the bus, basically saying that Murray ran out of bounds or slid down to the ground during the a loss to the Dolphins two weeks ago, and guys on the team noticed that, that he didn't turn up field to try to get a first down and take a hit and gain a few more yards. He, uh, he slid down to the ground. And, uh, you know, you just start to wonder. Um, you just start to wonder. And, and at four and six and things not going as well as everyone expected them to go, you know, if there's a loss Thursday to the Lions who have won their last two games against teams that were supposed to be better than them, the Packers and the Raiders, um, you wonder how low this thing can go. You know, I, I think about, you know, you, and Jeff wrote about this and you mentioned it earlier, the critics of the culture who are not here anymore. Anytime anybody's uh, brings up Deshaun Jackson's name, I immediately think of a great many things. Uh, and in his case, many other reasons, maybe he might have been right. on his way out of town. Right, we really and, don't but, know. But, like the and, Eagles and, and all of these guys, yeah. you know, they're, they're, there were other legitimate reasons that you could concoct right. for them going. Right. But the, th- the thing that I find interesting, the guys who re- replaced them, and here's maybe a little bit of a margin between those guys who were left and those guys who were gone, that those guys who were not Chip Kelly's players, he didn't bring them in. Now Chip says, okay, if you're not of your own volition demonstrating to me that you want to be here, whatever, him mm-hmm. being a warm and fuzzy guy or not, He's gonna. He went out and and got guys who, in his mind, he figured he didn't have to tell them that they wanted to be here. He just knew by signing them that they wanted to they be wanted here. to be here and would therefore play hard for him. But I wonder, even if as as Brandon Graham went on at length in conversation with Jeff McLean about wanting to be here, I whether I wonder whether they want to play so much for each other. And that leads me to a column earlier this week from Bob Brookover, headlined "Sanchez and Sproles squabble as Eagles offense goes awry." Yeah, I mean, look, that squabbling between Sproles, first of all, and any squabble between Darren Sproles and Mark Sanchez, I'm taking Darren Sproles every day of the week and twice on Sunday. I mean, we all remember the play, you know, Sproles didn't turn around for a screen pass, you know, Tampa linebacker picks it off, runs it for a touchdown, Sanchez yells at him, Sproles yells back. Um, And and as I said, you know, if, if the choice comes down to who do you believe as to, you know, where who was supposed to be where I believe Darren Sproles. I don't believe Mark Sanchez in his 84 turnovers in his career, 84 interceptions, excuse me, 100 at least 100 turnovers in his career. Um, that could be something out of frustration, but but that could be something too out of players recognizing what the situation is now. You know, when when Sam Bradford got hurt, everybody knew, okay, here comes Mark Sanchez. And everybody like on the team, I imagine personally likes Mark Sanchez because you know certainly everybody in the media likes Mark Sanchez. He's a nice guy. He he's accommodating to everybody. That's what we want out of a quarterback or an NFL player. Just be nice to us. We we don't ask for much. Right. Um, but everybody also knows, including everybody in that locker room, what Mark Sanchez is as a quarterback. And he's a guy who gives the ball to the other team. So once Bradford gets hurt. And Sanchez starts to do what he does, throwing interceptions and turning the ball over. That is a corrosive thing, you know, because guys can see what's in front of them. They can see DeMarco Murray not turning it upfield. They can see Mark Sanchez throwing the ball to the other team. They can see Kiko Alonso not looking like the guy that the Eagles thought he was going to be when they traded LaShawn McCoy to get him. And Was it you who wrote about uh, Maxwell? Yeah, the $63 million flake of snow, yeah. I called him. Um, which is true. And that touchdown he allowed to Tampa, he just kind of floated over there. Didn't hit the guy, didn't try to intercept the pass, was just there. Um, 
And that's, that's a curious thing to me that we've gotten here this quickly to, that, to this low estate because I guess I'm surprised that Chip w- was so haphazard about it. I wonder if he, it's almost like I have to think if he was like testing, you know, well, this is my first go round as a GM and a personnel guy. So let me just try it this way and see what happens. If it doesn't work, I'll try it another way another time. And I'm learning as I go and I'm going to be here a while. So if we go six and 10 this year, well, no big deal. We'll give it another whirl the next offseason. Except... I almost wonder, even even if it was a simple matter of him cloning himself mm-hmm. so that he wouldn't have to be piling all into one brain, the GM right. stuff and the coach stuff, even if the guy who was sitting right next to him did exactly everything that he wanted to do, right? whether it would be easy or not. Be- because it, it just, it, as, as you sort of alluded to, there are times when it feels like, He's got too much on his plate. And in the course of a season, when you're in the middle of a season and they're trying to bail water out of the ship of its, as it's taking on, you can't look at the bigger picture and try to figure out what you did wrong because you're trying to bail the water out of the ship. Yeah, well, no, I don't, think, I don't think there's any doubt he's not looking at the bigger picture at all. I mean, I, I, clearly he's not doing that. Um, you know, and I think that's true of a lot of coaches in the NFL. It's, it's strictly a week-to-week kind of thing. But... What concerns me about that perspective from Chip's point of view is that he doesn't seem to acknowledge it even when you talk to him during the week. Like he, you know, Zach Berman wrote about this, you know, today uh, that, you know, you ask him a question about Mark Sanchez's propensity for turning the football over. And Chip says something like, well, you've got to look at every interception in its context. You know, was he blitzed on this play? Did he not see a guy on that play? And it's like, Chip, Mark Sanchez has five years worth of evidence of what he is as a quarterback in this league. Don't you see some trends that you can identify and and then explain away or at least try to account for? Um, and that's the curious part. I mean, it and and I get all that. I get the frustration and the and the belief that, okay, wow, Chip doesn't know what he's doing. But he's still only in his third year of this. And he did go ten and six the first two. And we do tend to think we, we do tend to draw judgments on coaches in every sport in the NFL in particular very quickly. Um, and if we're going to stick to the model of the guy that Chip has seemed to pattern himself after, who was Bill Belichick, Bill Belichick was by no means a genius. His five years in Cleveland before he came to New England, and even his first season in two weeks when he was with the Patriots. Um, so it wasn't until Tom Brady that came along that all of a sudden Belichick became this brilliant head coach. And that doesn't mean he's not smart. It just means that. Hey, you need a quarterback sometimes. So, you know, while I'm disappointed in what I've seen from Kelly this season, I'm not necessarily ready to go, hey, this whole thing is falling apart and there's nothing he can do about it and he doesn't even deserve a chance to kind of write it um, before Jeffrey Lurie should say goodbye. Well, here's the thing about Lurie's role in this. And Bob Ford took the metaphorical hammer to Jeff Lurie in, in Tuesday's Inquirer. Yes, he did. The baby, the bathwater, the nanny, and the state of the bathwater. <laughs> as Bob, as Bob put it, very, uh, very descriptively. Yes, um, I believe he referred to him as a uh, to Chip as what was it? Chip's the baby. Jeff Lurie's the nanny, and the bathwater is the bathwater. I think that's the best. <laughs> no, I think. Hold on, hold on. It was. Um, go ahead, make your point, and I'll it, find that, it here. Yeah, it's. Uh, that, my point. We very high tech yeah. things. John's printed out Bob's column on a, uh, <laughs> a piece of paper. Um, my point is, when Howie Roseman was moved into the broom closet, right, it was pretty clear at the time, if my memory's right, please correct me if I'm wrong, that 
the message was, okay, we're going all in on chip. And if it doesn't work, then it is going to be on Chip Kelly ultimately. Right. Well, it's not working. And I would presume. Yeah, but the question is, the question is when, you know, the question, you know, we don't know what chip went into. When, when chip went into Jeffrey Lurie's office and said, give me power because if I leave, you will be embarrassed and humiliated. And I have all the leverage. We don't know what he said. We don't know whether he said, I only need a year to turn this thing around. You know, make a couple moves here, a couple moves there, get rid of some guys, get rid of Sean McCoy, cut these guys, bring in these kind of, my kind of guys, and we'll be fine. Or whether he said something similar to, you know, more along the lines of what Sam Hankey told Josh Harris with the Sixers, like this is going to take a long time and you need to give me some rope to, to get it to where we all want it to be. So... Not knowing what, whether that was said, we don't know what, you know, and Jeffrey Lurie has not talked, you know, since, you know, I think the Ray Rhodes administration. <laughs> so we don't know exactly what Jeffrey's thinking at this point. Um, and so at this point, you can, it is fair to say, as Bob Ford did in his column today, that Lurie's going to be the last guy to admit that he put his football franchise, quote, in the hands of an unqualified nanny whose self-assured bluster is unmatched by an ability to provide proper care. Yeah. Now, yeah. that I mean that's a that's a that's, you know, 2 tons I, I, worth I, of, yeah. you know, I worth of dynamite. I think Chip right is unqualified there. per se, but I also think that as I said, it was clear at the start of this season that Chip was being given carte blanche. Right. And that if he blew it, it would blow up on him. And mm-hmm. then by extension by alert to Lurie certainly if he didn't act fast enough. But you talked about Sam Hinkie and Josh Harris and the Sixers and the difference between the NFL and all of the other professional sports leagues in the United States. Right. Is that the NFL is the most year-to-year yes. of all of them. Yes. And there's any team in the NFL can make a quick jump, can fall quickly as we've seen with the 49ers and the Seahawks and mm-hmm. so forth. And teams don't, not that they can't, but they certainly don't league-wide build up a ramp over a couple years Maybe Carolina, but for the most part, it doesn't happen. Yeah, but by the same token, the question becomes, why can't Chip that happen for Chip next year? You know, one of the reasons that that happens, one of the reasons it's such a year-to-year thing, is that when you're bad one year, you get an easier schedule the next year. And when you're good one year, you get a harder schedule the next. So you never really know to some degree. Right, so at some level, you never you don't know. You, you know, if you finish in fourth place... In 2014, in 2015, you're going to be playing all the other fourth place teams, you know, who happen to come up on your schedule, you know, depending on which divisions you're playing that particular year. So um, it is a year to year thing. And what we also see is that teams tend to make a jump if they bring in a a new head coach who seems to be competent in his first year. We've discussed this, Murph and I have discussed this on previous podcasts. And Murph had a column today in the Daily News that made a really good point. If you're going to fire Chip Kelly, or if Chip Kelly walks away, who are you going to get? Like, who's the guy now? Are you going to go get, you know, look at all these other coaches who have come along in recent years that franchises thought were going to be world beaters. Look at Bill O'Brien and Mike Pettin and uh, Gus Bradley and all these people who whose records aren't as good as Chip's. So, you know, it's a really fine line to walk. I would be stunned if Chip weren't back next year. And I think if he isn't back, it's not going to be because Jeffrey Lurie. It's because he walks. Yeah, it's because yeah. he walks. And I don't think he'll walk because I don't think that 
he's the kind of guy who's going to look at this and say, ah, I give up. I'm going back to college and go to LSU or Texas or USC or wherever I happen to want to go because he's been there, done that, man. He wants to succeed at this level. The, the one thing I wonder and about, and th- this goes to the ways in which Chip Kelly has gotten things wrong. Um, and most important of them, or at least most overarching of them, if I could tie various aspects of it together, would be lack of depth. Yes. And whereas in the college game, you've got 20 line guys. Right, right, yeah. Exactly. And the, the, the jump from, you've got obviously a number that are going to go play in the pros and everybody knows it. Right. But from two to six, the variance in quality is not as great as it is from one to three in the NFL. That's right. And I wonder if that kind of a flaw is so fundamental that if he doesn't step back and either let somebody tell him Hmm. or see it for himself, that that might keep coming after. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. And I think, you know, I think we're all kind of wondering what a Chip Kelly player is. And I wonder if Chip is trying to find it out too in the NFL. It's easy to be a chip it's easier to be a chip Kelly kind of player in college because your kids, they're kids, they're younger, they're more impressionable. They're going to they're going to tend more to listen to whatever coach it is. And so it it might be easier for Chip to target guys who he knows are going to listen to him and do what he asks them to do. And as you said, the talent gap between the first string quarterback and the second string quarterback and the third string quarterback mm-hmm. is far narrower than the difference generally between Tom Brady and whoever the Patriots backup happens to be or Aaron Rodgers and Scott Tolzien in Green Bay or something like that. So yeah, look at Baylor right now in college football. Baylor's on its like third quarterback of the season, and that offense, Art Browse offense, just keeps rolling and rolling and rolling. It's not happening here with Chip and you know Nick Foles and Mark Sanchez. Each one has had his own problems, Sam Bradford. So... Um, you know, I don't know. I think Chip's got to figure out what kind of guy he really wants and whether the guy he wants now is the guy he can win with, is a guy he can win with, and whether he needs to adjust to the realities of the NFL. You know, I mean, this Jeff is Jeff McClain is, is you know, taking a look at the Jason Peters situation, for instance. And it looks like Jason Peters is the one deciding whether he's going to play each Sunday or not. I don't like that. I don't like that either. You know, but Chip seems to be allowing, either Chip is allowing him to get away with it or Jason Peters just doesn't care what Chip says and is saying like, shoot, I'm ready to go 45 minutes before the game, adjust accordingly. And so Peters goes into left tackle and then Lane Johnson, who thought he was going to play left tackle, now it's play right right tackle. And, you know, you get a little bit of chaos where you don't necessarily need any. So um, Thursday is going to be the last interesting game, I think, they have this season, if that makes sense. The one after that is going to be interesting only because of the team on the other side of the field. Oh, yeah, absolutely. You go watch, you watch Tom Brady. That's, that's what you do um, and see how badly they tune up that defense. Yeah. Um, but, you know, this game, you will, I'm curious to watch it just to see how they come out and whether they are sharper, edgier, um, more emotional, for lack of a better way of putting it, because they just seem to be sleepwalking through that game Sunday. And I know, I'm not saying that they didn't play hard. I'm not saying, I'm not questioning their effort. It just seemed like they just kind of knew, like, we're not there, you know, anymore. That the veneer is, the veneer of invincibility and mystery of Chip Kelly is gone. Uh, you, you talked about Chip trying to figure out what kind of player at the pro level a Chip Kelly player is. Right. I could come up with any number of teams in the NFL where a coach would at least get some amount of leeway to do it. 
But boy, to have to do that in the NFC East is just, yeah, you know, that's the one where all the teams are on national TV every week, and everybody's right. always talking about him, and the spotlight is is bigger than anywhere except you know maybe Chicago and Green Bay and and one or two other places. Boy, you're taking a lot of risk if you're still trying to figure things out like that. Yeah, and and you know we make fun a lot of the Redskins, and rightfully so. We make fun of the Cowboys, and rightfully so. Um, the Giants, you know. Two Super Bowls recently, yes, but, you know, oh, Tom Coughlin has that crimson face when it gets cold out, and Eli Manning is Napoleon Dynamite, and all that stuff. But the Eagles are way behind the other three teams in the NFC East when it comes to championships, when it comes to prestige and esteem in the history of the game. When you think about the NFC East at its peak in the late 80s and early 90s, all those those three other teams all won Super Bowls. The Eagles didn't. So... I always kind of feel like the Eagles are kind of clawing, always clawing upward against the rest of the division because they don't have a championship. And yet, and by the way... And I, maybe that yeah, informs I, how they do things. Yeah, I grew up in D.C., as people know, and the Eagles ruined my childhood on more than one or two mm-hmm. days while I was going, even in the years when what is now the Landover team was pretty good. Yeah. In the last 10 years or so, notwithstanding the Giants having won those Super Bowls, the Eagles have been ahead of everybody else in the division in a lot, in not every way, but in a lot of significant ways. In a lot of ways. Um, you're right. Lately, they've been the most consistently good franchise. But the Giants have had more peaks, and the Cowboys have maintained their status as America's team because that's what Jerry Jones cares about. Right. And yeah, the Redskins have been a dumpster fire for probably a decade and a half, but they still won three Super Bowls. Um, I think it was three. So, you know, the Eagles aren't there yet in terms of tradition and history with those three teams. And I just wonder about that. I wonder if Jeffrey Lurie looks at that and sa- and that informs what he's trying to do and why he does things the I, way he does them. I don't dispute, and I haven't since Andy Reid was fired, I don't dispute that Jeff Lurie is trying to do everything he can. I still think that the barometer is when the fans are leaving early as they did. Yes. Yeah. Against uh, in the last couple of weeks, you know, they have the bags on their heads and when the seats are empty at kickoff as I have seen increasingly happen at Eagles games blows my mind. But you know what? That I mean part of that is an NFL-wide trend. Not to make an excuse for Philadelphia, but that's something that the NFL's been fighting for a few years now is the is the fact the mere fact that the experience of watching a game at home quite frankly is better than oh, to, yeah. than being oh, there. Oh sure. You you're in a climate controlled room you have your, your beer your food your right. you've got your 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 wireless devices right um you know and people look at it and say i'd rather do that than watch one game i'd rather watch and, that, and that's on Roger you know Goodell, red zone Jeff yeah Lurie, you know, yeah that's i'd rather watch different. red zone you know on the nfl network or whatever sure. you know than than just a single so, game so i want last question about the eagles a quote that chip kelly offered today to reporters in detroit on a conference call a couple hours before we taped the show on, uh, on Tuesday. Chip Kelly was asked whether he would entertain going back to college football. Quote, no, I have a job, end quote. I know he said similar things to that a couple of times over the course of this year. But my initial thought when I saw that quote was, boy, that's a very present tense statement. I saw your tweet about that, yeah. I, I don't and know. And what does it say that we can't trust him to stick around? Bill, you can say that about any head coach who's going through a tough time and had success at, a, at the collegiate level, I think. The fact that the possibility or the perception exists that Chip might go back to college 
gives him incredible leverage over the Eagles. Absolutely. So it is to his benefit that last year the Florida rumors get out there. And the LSU this year. And the LSU this year and the USC earlier this year. That all that does is help him because college football is exploding in terms of its size and popularity. And it's not outlandish to think that one of these traditionally great college programs will start making runs at NFL coaches. You know, hey, come here like like Michigan did with Jim Harbaugh and something like that. So, uh, and coaches that are that are recognized to be smart guys who are in a bad way at the NFL level. So that was Harbaugh. It is Chip now. I still would be surprised if Chip left. He's not. I don't think he's as wacky as Harbaugh is. He doesn't have that strong connection to a program the way Harbaugh. did I was going to say Michigan. that's why Harbaugh went to Michigan more right. than anything. He's a Michigan man. Um, you know, so. I still would be really surprised if if Chip left after this season. Um, would I rule it out entirely? No, I wouldn't necessarily rule it out entirely. Let's uh, turn to your wonderful three-part feature in the Inquirer in the last few days uh, on Jairo Munoz, this Phillies prospect who came from the Dominican Republic, had his shot, sort of lost it, fell into poverty in Philadelphia, Philadelphia. and now is on his way back. Yeah. And... and you know, I, I'm going to assume that the listeners out there have read the. You should the read it if you uh, yeah. if you haven't. Um, if you go to the front of the Philly.com sports section, there's a box that has links to all the stories right there. We're going to leave it there for a couple of days, I think. Um, but since we're here, what goes into reporting out a story like that? Well, um, first you have to find out about it, which was really. Um, which was a long story in and of itself. The only reason I found out about the story was because I used a credit card to buy a couple T-shirts. There's a, uh, I live in Bucks County, not far from Doylestown, and on a Saturday afternoon in the summer, I went into town because there's this really cool T-shirt shop there called Monkey's Uncle, free plug, and uh, it sells vintage. They appreciate it. Yeah, vintage sports T-shirts and you know movie T-shirts, they, and they have a lot of cool Philadelphia-related stuff too. Anyway, I go in there with my two sons, and I buy a couple shirts, and I pay for them with a the credit card. And the guy behind the counter who also owns the store says, hey, you have the same last name as the sports writer. <laughs> I said, well, as it turns out, I'm, I am the sports writer. And he says, oh, I have a great story for you. Give me your email address. So it turns out that the guy who owns Monkey's Uncle is involved in this charity, Homers for Hope, who was involved in helping out Jairo Munoz. And he sends me an email basically outlining the whole story. And it was just left to me to track things, track everybody down. So... You know, I spent a day with Jairo in Lakewood. I watched him pitch. I went to dinner with him. Um, I basically talked to everybody who had ever had a connection with him one way or another. Um, the scouts who who decided to sign him, the, the basketball agent who initially discovered him in a bodega in West Philadelphia. Um, I went to the bodega where Jairo had worked. I went to the corner where his apartment was, where he had lived. Um, while he's working under the table for 50 bucks a week uh, or 50 bucks a day, whatever it was. Um, so, yeah, I, you, you just, you, you, you do, you take every necessary step to find out as much as you possibly can and then you go back and fact check and recheck and so far, so good. I haven't had anybody tell me I got anything wrong in the series. So that's, that's nice well, to hear. A, there's a lot in there, so that, that's that, that was good, good yeah. How, if you were to take a guess at the number of people that you talk to for this story? Oh, God. Because um, even from what you just said... Probably like 15 to 20 mm -hmm. at a minimum. 
Um, and that's and then it, that doesn't include like the research I did on baseball in the Dominican Republic and that sort of thing. Uh, but yeah, I'd say fifteen to twenty for this. I mean, I had some some people who were involved in the story who were very very helpful, and uh, so they provided me with a lot of information. Um, but yeah, I'd say fifteen to twenty. You know, and I like projects like this. I like being able to write longer when the opportunity presents itself. I don't know if it it gets reads in the same way that like like we always joke. If you give the choice of column topics, do you write the flyers or do you type Chip Kelly 350 times and file that? Because what's going to get more hits on Philly.com, Chip Kelly is, and it doesn't matter what you write. And that's not a function of anything other than you're writing about the Eagles and Chip Kelly as opposed to anything else. Right. So um, in this, when these rare situations come up where you get to kind of stretch your legs a little bit, I like that. I like to take advantage of that when I can. We hear all the time, and there are, there are stories written all the time about, oh, what happened to that great Philadelphia basketball pros- prospect who had his shot maybe at a big five school and spent a year in the pros, and then it went off the rails or whatever, who knows what. And in that communist sport that we're not going to mention, there are <laughs> stories all the time about the Hispanic communities in America and how uh, they are underscouted by the American yes. youth soccer system, including in the Philadelphia region, and there are who knows how many great players there are out there who might be able right. to play in the pros. Right. In baseball, the scouting and development system is so vast. Yes. And covers so much ground in so many parts of the country. that to, Parts of the world, really. To, sure. But you don't as often hear a story like this in baseball as you do in other sports. Yeah, you know, that was what was interesting to me about it was that he really hadn't made it yet. I kind of liked that about it. It wasn't a situation where you're telling the backstory of somebody like Pedro Martinez or somebody who had already made it. Like, I'm sure there are dozens, if not hundreds, of guys like Jairo Munoz who have a lot of ability at a very young age and something happens where they're just not able to make it and they end up spending their lives in the Dominican Republic cutting rice for the rest of their lives and they never make it. And here was a guy who, you know, had this collection of people reach out and help him and kind of all of them guiding him on this journey where if he had if he had made one wrong decision or had something had happened a different way he'd be back in the Dominican Republic living in you know whatever poverty he lived in in West Philadelphia was nothing compared to what he was living in in Dominican so you know that's that's kind of one of the turning points of the whole series is you know he has a choice he gets released by the Kansas City Royals and they can, they have paid for him to fly back to the Dominican Republic, and he chooses not to. He chooses to remain in the United States and run the risk that he'll be deported if he stays, because um, his immigration sponsor, the Royals, no longer have any connection to him. And he chooses to work under the table in West Philadelphia and take the one in a billion chance that somebody's going to find him and give him another shot in pro baseball. And as it turns out, a basketball agent happens to discover him of all things, and and it goes from there. So. Um, I liked that about the story. I, I like the fact that this is still an unknown kid and who knows how this is going to turn out. But just consider what it took for him just to get to this point. And right under our noses, as it were, yeah. for all of us. Yeah, know? exactly. You know, he's, he lives in West Philly. He pitches in Lakewood, which isn't far away. Um, and here it is. And it's somebody now that maybe people will keep their eyes on because I think he's an interesting prospect. He throws in the mid to high 90s. He's probably going to be in Clearwater, if not Reading, this year. Um, he's still only 25. 24, 25, so there's a possibility he'll be up at the big club in 2017, I would think. 2016, 2017. 
Well, it's great stuff. Thanks. Um, appreciate it. I'm glad we glad we got a chance to discuss it. I appreciate that. Um, and I think with that, at that, I think we should probably let people get on to thinking about how they're going to go out and party on Wednesday night. So they don't big, have to watch the Eagles game on right, Thursday because right. they'll still be out of it. Well, the good part <laughs> about playing it at 1230 on Thanksgiving afternoon when you're as bad as the Eagles have been is that, you know, the Wednesday night, the night before Thanksgiving is the biggest party night of the year. So dozens, hundreds, thousands of people will be hungover and asleep and not wanting or able to watch that, the that's, game. That's just our perception. That's not an endorsement. Oh, I don't think, that, no, not an endorsement. <laughs> just, you know, these things tend to happen. Right. So um, have a happy Thanksgiving. You too. And uh, Murph and I will be back and John will be back next week um, with a much more extended version of not another Philly sports talk show. Enjoy the holiday, everyone.